These days, several interests swirl through my mind and heart. Disparities and equity in healthcare, community research partnerships, and continuous learning about health. Well, you know, swirling sounds too pretty and neat. Perhaps it's smearing through my mind and heart. Murky and messy. Recently, I read a commentary in the journal Learning Health Systems by my friend and colleague Matthew Hudson, entitled General Orders for the Embedded Researcher, Moorings for a Developing Profession. When I reconnected with Matt to congratulate him on his article and further explore the possibility of embedded researcher, I realized that he thinks deeply about the whole smeared mess. I invited Matt to join us. Matthew Hudson, Ph.D., MPH, has over 20 years' experience conducting and teaching research in healthcare and academic settings. He has served on multiple private and federal research review committees, prioritizing patient-centered outcomes research and healthcare organization science. Matthew also partners with other stakeholders to develop hospital-based programs educating patients about research design. He and his colleagues' efforts encourage patient engagement across the research continuum from research question design to results dissemination. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm honored to be here. Would you uh, please introduce yourself and include the journey that you went through to write that wonderful article about the embedded researcher? Sure, sure. Uh, again, thank you very much for the invitation. It's always great to to speak with you. For everybody else, my name is Matthew Hudson. You also call me Matt, and I currently work in a health system in the southern portion of the United States. Professionally speaking, you could describe me as an embedded researcher. When I use the term embedded researcher, I'm describing someone possessing a research background that's typically someone with some sort of academic or research degree, but not always. But that person would immerse themselves in a health system or some sort of clinical setting and they do that to collaborate with patients and healthcare providers to investigate problems that people face in real world clinical practice. And I help them figure out ways to perform better in whatever way you would define better. But 
when you become embedded in a health system, you realize that the people that you work with, that they grew up and they are from a different culture and neighborhood than you. And of course, I'm speaking literally, but I'm also speaking figuratively because to the latter, my education didn't look the way that a doctor or a nurse's education looked. We learned different things and we learned them in different ways. Some hospitals value that different skill set that I might bring and they asked me to help figure out how to solve problems. But in helping clinicians figure out how to provide care in what can be a real black box for both patients and providers, you can easily minimize or just plain forget the importance of maintaining the wellness of a community. You have to be equally invested in figuring out how to encourage prosperity in a community and not just treat illness for a small group of patients. So I feel that I've been challenged at least to retain that perspective, being embedded in a health system. And there's really no instruction manual, at least not that I've found, for how to work as an embedded research. Now, there are a set of skills that people expect embedded researchers to know and to apply, but that's not the same as teaching one how to be an embedded researcher. So for example, if somebody asked you how to be a musician, I don't know that you would say you, you have to know how to apply major and minor scales and you have to know how to execute a chord progression or plug in your guitar. Those are all competencies that they, they don't really tell you how to be a musician. And right or wrong, when you say the word musician, there's an image that comes to mind. And it's not entirely somebody playing a scale. It's it, it comes apart as their way of being. It's a vocation. It's a way of living your life. And it seems to me that people assume that, that you can tell what a embedded researcher is by what they do. And what I would argue is that you have to dig deeper to understand embedded research. And you have to think critically about who embedded researchers are. Right. And there's no instruction manual that I know of to teach someone how to be that. Uh, so I, I just provided in that article some general thoughts about how to live embedded research as a vocation, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. So I, I love this idea. I personally had experience when I worked at Boston Children's that in the nursing department, there was an embedded researcher. So she was a nurse researcher who built a bridge between the patients, the clinicians, the system, and helping to formulate the study question, design the study, execute the study. And she was really familiar with a lot of different cultures, both internally and externally. And I thought that a lot of what she did was yeah, bridge building brought her expertise to bridge building. But as I'm thinking about, like one of the things I really like about this is that I just spin off into other things. Like the other day I was talking to a friend of mine who was telling me about one of her colleagues 
who was a first responder in his community. And he was a researcher. That was his vocation. And his volunteer work was as a first responder in his community. And so he found himself developing into an embedded researcher in the first responder community. And I, I want to talk to him some more about that experience. But the point that I've been thinking about with your work, your writing, is how do the, like, a health system can afford, and, and it can be part of their business plan to have an embedded researcher, and they see the value of it. And I wonder sometimes about how that can happen to communities, however we might want to define community. Let me back up and clarify one of your assumptions. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. And one can make the assumption that, quote, health systems can't afford to utilize an embedded researcher. Now, theoretically, that's true, but practically speaking, that may not always be the case. There are many different types of models that one can use to, quote, embed researchers in clinical practice. It's not uncommon that a clinical enterprise assumes no financial responsibility for bringing in an, an embedded researcher, that the clinical enterprise, quote, merely provides a host environment in which an embedded researcher works, but they may not necessarily support them in terms of a salary. So then they are grant-based, so they're like, they're generating income for so, research through grants? So like, how does that happen? What's a but, business model? Right, so that, the how does that happen can be in a number of ways. I'll just throw out a couple. One, sure. that an embedded researcher has a home institution in an academic setting. Okay. And that their paycheck, however that paycheck is derived, comes from the university. Okay. And as part of the relationship that a university and a health system may have, a scholar from the academic institution may choose to be or solicited to be embedded in the clinical enterprise. The benefit for the clinical enterprise is that they have now an individual who has certain talents and skills that they can apply to in clinical problem. The attraction for the scholar is that they now know that their research can be more readily translated into a usable product where it's not uncommon that, that scholars' research interests lack a practical application. <laughs> yes, yes. Implementation be, science. And I, I want to be very careful about that because I don't want to disparage it. Yes. Because the academy provides generalizable truths about human behavior mm -hmm. that are gravely advantageous for informing clinical practice. Mm -hmm. That said, there are also instances where both the researcher and the clinical enterprise would benefit from a specific application of how to solve problems now. And so that would be the attraction for an academician to engage 
a health system. There has to be a financial investment in developing an infrastructure in which an embedded researcher and the embedded research team can thrive. For example, you have to have personnel to facilitate access to electronic health record data. You have to develop an enterprise that can educate the system not just on the nuts and bolts of how to conduct research, but the philosophy of data collection and why data collection is important to improving clinical practice mm-hmm. and simply shifting a misperception that research, however one thinks about it, practically speaking, is merely nothing more than a book report. That simply yeah. seeing research on a piece of paper is not the same as writing a book report. There's a significant amount of reflection and consideration necessary to develop a tenable research project that can inform clinical practice. That can't be a haphazard enterprise. The clinical enterprise has to commit to wanting to know how to improve practice. And that can't be done on the cheap. That's very interesting. The infrastructure part. So to me, I think there's like asking the research question that's vital to either the communities being served or the patients being served or the clinicians treating those communities or people. There's the methodology Like, how is the research going to be done? What's the science of it? There's the recruitment of it and obviously dissemination. And finally, what you're saying that I really appreciate is action, a a reasonable likelihood that research will inform how people are doing the work together, making decisions, trying to get that there is a difference between permission and commitment. Okay, say more. Yeah, yeah, say more. One may permit research to occur in a system, which is go ahead and do it if you think you can do it, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas commitment is we value these insights and we want to marshal resources and a culture amenable to generating this. Mm-hmm. For a greater good, I would prefer to be in the latter circumstance, right, right, where, right. Where, where an organization has made a commitment as opposed to simply permitting me to do research. Let me back up a step. In my seat on the board of PCORI, one of the things that I try to bring up is that it's odd to me that sometimes it takes work for researchers to be interested in the implementation of their findings. Sometimes we're looking to recruit people who have done research to implement their findings. And that to me is a little bizarre. But I feel like you're explaining that a little bit because that's the commitment part. So let me interrupt a second. Yeah, yeah. Because I also, I want to clarify a statement that you made. And the statement that I heard Mm -hmm. was that researchers are not typically interested in implementing their findings. Is that a a fair paraphrase of what I heard? Yeah. Okay. So I would counter with the, the notion that there is an entire 
domain of scholarship called implementation science, mm-hmm. which focuses on clarifying the steps that promote a systematic uptake of evidence and integration into clinical practice. Okay. And so there is a whole group of health service researchers who are infinitely committed to ensuring that information and evidence and interventions that are proven effective actually get rolled out into clinical practice. Now, digging deeper into your statement or your assumption, it would seem curious that if we know that there is an intervention that is, is effective, why is it that it's so difficult to actually get it implemented? That relates to the organization's affinity for the intervention relative to competing goals and demands. It's a product of whether or how information gets diffused through a system. Mm-hmm. So simply having the truth doesn't necessarily mean that other people know the truth or that it gets disseminated Mm -hmm. in a systematic way to ensure that everybody is operating uh, from the same premise. Do you think that the embedded researcher might have a leg up on that? I would say that an embedded researcher would be a prime steward of that. Okay. Uh, I like that. Yes. Simply because of their training and background. I I alluded to that earlier. You correct me if I'm I'm wrong, because I know that you are a nurse and and I'm going to create a story about how you were trained as a nurse, Mm -hmm. right? You were trained to focus on diagnosing a particular patient, treating a particular patient given such a diagnosis, Mm -hmm. uh, a specific care plan Mm -hmm. uh, for a particular patient. But I'm going to create a story that you weren't readily trained in how the organization facilitated or impeded your ability to provide that care. Oh, absolutely. That is way true. And so the way that I grew up, one of my degrees has three foci. One is healthcare policy, right? What is the general, what are the, the, the general policies or regulations, both at a level or at a MISO level within a hospital that facilitate uh, optimal care? Mm-hmm. So there's health policy, then there's quality improvement. Mm-hmm. How do we get better at doing that, which we know we should be doing, mm-hmm. right? Then the third is understanding medical decision-making, right? What are the social psychological factors that mediate either a patient or provider's predisposition to elect a care plan and stay true to that care plan. So I have a background in thinking about all of these things that are contextual factors relative to what you were trained to do to to figure out what the care plan is, what the diagnosis is. And someone like me is trained to think more critically about the influences and the context that allows the patient and provider to capitalize on the treatment plan. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I've been a nurse almost 50 years now, and I would say that my first 15, 20 years was what you were describing, the art and science of individual care. And then I discovered organizations. And it was understanding that I was operating in a context and becoming more interested in organizational health. So leadership 
and infrastructure and culture and how that set a stage for individual care, which is, I think, what you're describing. Right. Now, understand that at least my comments had really been focused on what happens in this black box. Okay. Now, what we've observed is that when an individual returns to a health system for the same condition, that is quite commonly owing to nothing that occurred within the health system. Mm -hmm. The reason that they're returning is because of factors that operate outside of the health system. Which is so, so often. And so if a health system fails to consider or help address the factors that portend somebody needing the health system, mm-hmm. they will set up a revolving door such right, that right. a person can never prosper. They will continue to be continually be exposed to illnesses that require treatment within the health system. Now, that is tragic in and of itself, but why is it particularly important in this day and age? The reason is because we health care workforce that is aging and getting closer to retirement, mm-hmm. right? So we have fewer health providers, generally speaking, to address a population of individuals that will increasingly require health or health care. So we are putting more pressure on the individuals providing care now more than ever. Those individuals providing care are, in fact, individuals. They are real people that have to endure the stress of a work environment. And so the health enterprise is becoming very concerned with workforce burnout, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially COVID now. Without question. That's an unforeseen circumstance this exacerbated the the current concern regarding the proportion of patients that have to be cared for relative to the provider workforce. And ultimately, we're concerned that the stress of the health enterprise will not be able to provide patients with the optimal patient-centered care that they need. Mm-hmm. So we have to start thinking critically about two things. One, how to maintain people's health and wellness outside of this black box. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we need to think critically about how to improve the workforce health of people within this black box, which requires a critical reflection on the organization-centric factors that mediate one's capacity to execute their sacred charge of providing patient care. Yeah, typically people within a health system have not been exposed to the education necessary to develop research around those topics, right? Because they just grew up thinking critically about the biomedical paradigm. They haven't used these organizational frameworks to think through how that would influence care. And again, coming full circle, that is why some health systems refund their on their workforce and their needs. And they say, we don't have people who are trained in domains of, for example, evaluative clinical science or implementation science or comparative effectiveness research. And we have to solicit individuals 
outside of our clinical environs with the hopes that they would be interested in lending their expertise to these clinical problems that we have. We're speaking with Matthew Hudson, who wrote an article in the journal Learning Health Systems entitled General Orders for the Embedded Researcher, Moorings for a Developing Profession. So this is a great segue into this other concern that I say other, but it it just flows right into it. I'm basically interested in learning what works. And that to me, learning what works is a continual process. And so whether that's on an individual level, and so whether the individual is a patient or an employee or a caregiver, or it's these systems who are trying to implement the findings of research and seeing, does it really work? And in what circumstance does it really work in real life? And I've been thinking about this continual learning part, that one of the things about research to me that I stumbled on is that there was a beginning and an end to the research project. And it was for a particular group of people with specific circumstances and a specific setting. But we never really continue to learn. And I've tried to bring this up in many different forums over 20 years. And I've been pretty completely ineffective. And and so I realized that I have this idea and either the idea is not well formed or the idea is doesn't fit into the black boxes that we've been talking about. So I'm wondering what you think about this idea of continual learning and, and growing this body of evidence Okay, so let me take a shot at, at this. And then, yeah. again, this is and this is me again creating a story. Here. Yes, uh, great. It's possible that the reason that you have been exposed to research projects that seemed um, to, to have a beginning, middle, and end is because there wasn't a sufficient consideration of the generalizable truth that we could extract from the specific line of inquiry. Yeah, okay. So, for example, let's take something easy, smoking cessation, right? Okay. Let's say that the, that the trick is, or the, not trick, I shouldn't say that. The aspiration is to reduce in the number of individuals smoking. If you design a study specifically focused on that, you can either observe that you had an impact or you didn't have an impact. Okay. Yeah. And if your interest is myopic, that is, if your interest is exclusively constrained to whether somebody smokes or not, there's a beginning, middle, and end to that in theory. But if you're trying to understand the generalizable truth 
mm-hmm. about how to encourage preventive behavior in the absence of illness, or if you're trying to understand these steps toward adopting a healthy behavior, you're trying mm-hmm. to understand yeah. that, then the research will still live because once you solve the problem of smoking, there's always another problem around the corner that you could apply these generalizable truths to. Okay. Right? So in the same way that at one time, we, tr- we had to try to figure out how to encourage people to obtain a polio vaccination. We were struggling with the notion that there's a way that we can reduce the evidence of polio. We have this. Why is it that people do not avail themselves of this shot? And there are a couple of smart people that they gleaned the generalizable truth that it has something to do with perceptions related to benefits of treatment, barriers of treatment, the susceptibility of a disease and the severity of a disease that informed this social psychological model called the health belief model, right? Now that health belief model could be applied and has been applied to mountains of clinical and population health and public health challenges. In that sense, Mm -hmm. the research has lived on. There is no end to it because in studying polio, they were trying to understand the generalizable truth about human behavior. Catch on to that. If you can hook yourself to that, regardless of the specific research question, your research will live on because no matter how successfully we are in solving problems, there is always going to be another problem that will emerge, whether it's acquired immunity deficiency syndrome, whether it is COVID or anything, any other tragedy that befalls our population. The, the idea is, and the trick is to glean the generalizable truth from the research that we undertake. I appreciate that. And I think let's take that story a little farther and to say that there's this generalizable truth and does it work with HIV? Does it work with COVID? Does it work with the measles? Continuing to ask that question and then building the pool of experience to whether it's a systemic like vaccination or whether it's individual related to smoking, did what we learned about smoking, does that work on the reservation? Does that work with Gen X? Sure. It's like continuing that. I guess if if I could extend this metaphor, there is a difference between learning a song and learning music. If you learn a song, you can only play that song and you might get tired of that song. If you understand the musical theory that motivates that song, you can rearrange those notes to create a different composition. Consequently, the um, number of songs would be infinite. And so the idea is to extract information that can be infinitely useful in any array of health service quandaries. Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. 
Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. Do you think that I'm asking an important question? Or am I asking the wrong question? Or are there more questions? Oh, geez. I, I, I have a visceral reaction to that because it minimizes your insight. Okay. I want to start with the premise that the question that you pose to yourself is an important question. Okay. That I accept it on its face. Okay. And, and, and it requires no justification or validation <laughs> from me. Okay. Or anybody. Now, I say that because in the context of our embedded research conversation, the charge of an embedded research is not simply to avail themselves of the clinical enterprise for the sake of practitioners. It's, it's to be of service to patients. And as a patient-centered outcomes researcher or one interested in that, I most certainly operate from the premise that the question that the patient poses is gravely important. Okay. It provides you insight into what a person values. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm interested in developing research relative to what individuals value, what I patients see. value. All right? So I bristle at the fundamental question about whether you are quote, thinking about this correctly or whether the question has any value. Now I'm going to buff out the, the, the scratches on that and, okay. I'll, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, re- I'll rephrase it. Okay. And I'll say, there may be a benefit to sharing your thoughts with another person to triangulate the question, right? Uh Uh-huh. This is the problem that I see. This is the question that I'm asking. Do you see the problem in the same way? Tell me how you see this problem. Do you think that this is a problem? So in that sense, your question to me is fair. Your follow-up question is, do you see this as a problem? I am answering it from a sincere perspective of reflection, not as a, a point of evaluation where I'm the yeah. arbiter of right. What? You're not judging me. Yes. Right. Thank you. Or I'm not judging your question. Yes. Right? And so I think that there is value in, in triangulating a question that you have, mm-hmm. right. That you, yeah, you yeah. may seek out individuals, both that you have something in common with and that you, and that you don't have anything in common with mm-hmm. to ascertain whether they quote, see this as a problem or if, they see the problem being resolved through similar media. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason that I'm spending time on this is because it's not uncommon that one poses the question, how do you get patients and clinicians and researchers to identify a research question, Mm -hmm. right? We, We can talk about strategies to develop a research question, But before you get there, who's a group to come to some agreement on the problem? Right. In English. And that does not mean necessarily we 100% agree. What what we can say is that this group feels that this reasonably represents the problem, right? Yes. Reasonably describe the problem. Now that we've described the problem, 
what is the research question yes. that we will craft relative to addressing this problem? Yes. So it, it, what you're saying is, uh, like I said, in English, but I don't really mean in English. What I really mean is in lay terms. Forget science, forget research, just what's the problem. Then bring in expertise right. in terms of research to translate it into research terms and something that's studyable. And so now we're back, as you're saying, to the embedded researcher who that's the mitzvah that embedded research, right. embedded research serve. Now, I want to interrupt you and, and yeah. back up because I said we have to define the problem. Right. Yes. Now, I don't want to minimize what that means. Right. Now, this is my opinion. This okay. is this editorial yeah. here. Yeah. But I think that in order to identify the problem, you have to reveal something about yourself. You become transparent about the way that you view the world. And, and one needs to be prepared that will occur. You reveal something about yourself by virtue of what you identify as problematic or don't identify as problematic. And the manner in which you frame it reveal something about yourself that you may or may not be ready to admit to yourself, much less to other people. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And, and that is when you are home alone looking in the mirror. Now, <laughs> if you were doing that in a group of people, it can become particularly volatile, which is part of why this work is so difficult. It's very difficult because it requires reflection on oneself that one may not be ready to address. And just because I said, first, you have to define the problem, and then you have to think critically about how to develop the research question. I, I didn't want to skip over that. Yes, an thank easy you. Step. In yeah. fact, what I'd argue is that developing the research question, that that's that can be pretty formulaic. I can, yeah. I can talk about the research question. That's uh, de defining the population, defining the outcome, defining mm -hmm. the control, defining mm -hmm. the, the intervention and the, and the timeline. I, I can spell all that out, but it's the lead work that is particularly challenging, right? Reflecting yeah. problem that, 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 that reveals something about yourself that we have to seriously consider if we want to go into those waters. We're speaking with Matthew Hudson, who wrote an article in the journal Learning Health Systems, entitled General Orders for the Embedded Researcher, Moorings for a Developing Profession. I remember the moment that I noticed you. Meaning, I may have met you already, I may have whatever, but the moment where I noticed you, okay, this is somebody I want to know more, was I think that you said something similar when we were talking about health equity and systemic racism, and you were talking about self-reflection and the challenge of self-reflection. And then I thought, okay, who is this guy, Matthew Hudson? Um, <laughs> so that's so interesting. Tortured soul. He's a tortured soul. No, I thought it was brilliant. 
I, I, I appreciated it. It opened I, my I, eye. I'd love you to appreciate that you said that. I think it reflects is it's part of my personal charge, right? Mm -hmm. that, that we always need to um, reflect on who we are for ourselves and how we present to the world, but also professionally that I'm of the mind that what one chooses to study does not occur by accident. It is yeah. a product of the values that they bring to the scientific enterprise. And I'm of the mind that science isn't value-free. So science can be subject to all of the same prejudices, biases, blind spots, and oversight. While I say that, I want to be clear that I'm not talking singularly about the real problems of institutional racism, of provider racism and provider bias. I'm speaking also about issues that I would consider to be in the domain of elude, that we genuinely think the world looks this way when really it is that way, whatever those ways are, that it is, that it is a naivete that we bring to the research enterprise that requires me to constantly question myself, to constantly explore where might my blind spots be, or I'm identifying this as a problem. What about me thinks that this is identified as a problem where that not so much? And that the same is true of health systems, right? Yeah. Right, uh, right. You know, that, that, that philosophically, why is it that health organizations are prioritizing population health now as opposed to 60 years ago. One could create the argument that it's because the reimbursement landscape is that if we are shifting from fee for service, where an institution receives a modem of comp compensation every time they execute a treatment, there may be less urgency to consider how to restrict the revolving door. If you realize now that, that you are receiving a payment to address this malady, the first lap around the track, and if you fail, you health system incur the cost, that forces a change in the way of mm -hmm. thinking that, that, that a health system might start to value things more at time two compared to time one. And so I just try to yeah, yeah. keep all of that in mind as I try to develop and think through how to develop research in a learning health system. Wow. So let's wrap this up with... I regret that we have to wrap it up. I can talk to you all forever. You this know? is good. No, this is really interesting. So what do you think if, if you wanted listeners to take two or three things from this conversation? What would you... What do you think are key? So we've talked about embedded researchers. We've talked about the problems. What, what do you think are the key things? I should be easily able to articulate uh, a number of things, but I'm going to just give you a stream of conscience. Sure. That's right. great. I'm of the mind that patients, providers, that is healthcare providers and researchers, fundamentally, they are all people mm -hmm. and they present to the enterprise with ignorance and brilliance good intentions and less than good intentions, mm -hmm. all equally. It behooves stakeholders to face their limitations and face their prejudices 
for themselves before they engage in partnerships and when they engage in partnerships to accept each other for both what they can provide and both their blind spots. Our obligation is to try to correct each other's blind spots and augment the strengths. I think that's what I would mm-hmm. hope that individuals take from uh, some of our discussion today and that understand that embedded researchers are particularly charged with thinking through those issues in service of developing generalizable knowledge that can be easily applied in service of the patients in the communities that we serve. Brilliant. Thank you. I don't know if it's brilliant. I I know it's what I think. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. This has been great. I appreciate, I appreciate your time. And I've been honored to speak with you. I love the, the, this podcast and I just want to thank you for the opportunity. And I hope that it's not the last time that we see each other professionally or personally. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. Did you get all that, kind listeners and readers? Let me take a stab at summarizing the wisdom shared by Matt. An embedded researcher collaborates with people and organizations to investigate problems important to them. They act as listeners, translators, connectors, resources, and stewards. They can open doors to the black boxes of research, care delivery, and life. They can be employed by universities or health systems. Sometimes the research applies locally, sometimes in similar or diverse settings, or even to a different problem altogether. Some sponsors of research give permission to do the research, and some have a commitment to implement the findings, using the results in real life. Some researchers have expertise in implementing study findings, and some don't. Embedded researchers are more likely to bridge the two. Healthcare providers both individuals and institutions, can directly control some of the factors related to health and can't control others. They can't necessarily control policy, laws, and regulations. They can't necessarily control wages, transportation, child care, family caregiving. Institutions can affect workforce burnout. Embedded researchers can bring expertise about what they can't control into institutions and research processes. Research about specific healthy behaviors, such as stopping smoking, feeds a continual learning process about other healthy behaviors. Questions people ask about healthy living require no justification. All questions have merit. Looking at questions through different lenses can help refine the problem statement 
and lead to more useful research. Asking questions about health can be scary. It reveals something about you and me, the askers. We need a safe place and courage. Embedded researchers can facilitate that safe place for self-reflection. Matt seeks to walk the talk of facing our strengths, limitations, biases, and blind spots to develop knowledge to serve patients and communities. Inspiring. Phew, how'd I do summarizing? Thanks, Matt, and thank you. Onward. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.